everybody and welcome to the June 2nd, 2017 edition of Colorado Inside Out. I'm your host, Dominic Ducity. Thank you very much for joining us. Let's get a quick take on U.S. Representative Jared Polis joining millions and throwing shade at President Trump's Kofifi tweet. That is a, a trademark pronunciation there. Trump seemed to embrace the typo and the fun, yet his own spokesperson seemed to defend the word hours later. With us to help explain the entire Kofifi mystery is, first, of course, Natasha Gardner, articles editor of 5280. So where are you in this? We had Trump actually having some fun with it, and then his spokesperson embraces it without sort of any tongue-in-cheek reaction. Where are you at? Well, first of all, I'm glad you took a stab at pronouncing it first. This is the type of thing that broadcaster nightmares are made out of. <laughs> um, you know, it's just all this fake news kofefe. You know, he wouldn't have to be up tweeting and possibly getting tired and sending something out before it was ready if there wasn't so much fake news kofefe. Um, but I think anyone, anyone who's used Twitter has made a mistake. Anyone who types has made a mistake. And it's all about your reaction to it. And it seemed like he had fun with it. And then it turned into this weird thing that was an inside joke that none of us can really understand, only a certain few people. And I think that's a great thing about Polis's reaction to it. Because if you read the fine print on his tweet, it makes reference to only a few people are going to get this. And I think it's a bigger question with administration. Like, you know, you made a mistake. People made fun of it. No big deal. Why are we still talking about it days later? But because they make such a big deal of it, it becomes something we talk about for days and days and days later. Beating a dead horse is something we do very well around this table. <laughs> David Kopel comes back to the panel after a couple yeah. weeks out uh, from DU Law School and Independence Institute. Uh, what did you make of the storm beyond just the example of the craziness that can be Twitter? Well, I was surprised by how many people didn't seem to have any knowledge of what kofefe uh, really means. Well, it, it, it ver that, that's part of kofefe-ness is the, the uncertainty about the pronunciation. <laughs> but right, so obviously a lot of people didn't understand it and they were, they were kind of frustrated by it. And everybody comes to, people who, who do understand kofefe, come to it in, in different ways and at different times. Uh, for me, I thought it was interesting that, that Trump's uh, awareness of this came not long after he touched the magic orb in Saudi Arabia. <laughs> there was going to be something as a byproduct of that event. Uh, it, it, who knew yeah. it was going to be Kofefe? Eric Sonnen, political analyst, you've been asked a lot of wacky questions, a lot of wacky events in real life to respond to. Anything like this one? Uh, most of them have been by you, Dominic. But, uh, <laughs> You're welcome. So, <laughs> so I just want to thank the crew here, Sarah, in particular. This Kofefe is really quite something. I haven't had, I haven't uh, really tasted anything like it before. Uh, I think it just shows that uh, maybe, yes, to Natasha's point, we all make mistakes on Twitter. We all make typos on a daily basis. But not all of us are president of the United States. And maybe there's room for an editor the thought of taking away Twitter from the president, that's long gone. That's not going to happen. But maybe uh, they could run it by one editor before, um, before they post it. Uh, I was imagining the headline between Jared Polis, and kudos to uh, Jared for having a sense of humor about this, but uh, Polis v. POTUS. 
is uh, is the headline there. It was a good laugh. It was definitely a good laugh, but I think we'll, we'll see a lot of things happen before we see an editor of the uh, uh, Twitter in charge here. So uh, let's round out the panel. Mary McCarthy, correspondent with Feature Story News. Uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, what did you make of all this and uh, of the huge reaction it got on Twitter uh, almost uh, spontaneously, a uh, worldwide trending topic in an hour? So most of my reporting is for uh, international news networks where I'm explaining lots about Trump. You know, Kofefe is the, the least of it, really, when the world looks at the United States. But, you know, this was the, the joke and the mistake with Trump that, for me, was just too much. I'm so tired of talking about the silliness. I don't, you know, it's not kudos to Trump or Polis for embracing the humor on this. There are important things going on in the world, like the arms deal that we just signed with Saudi Arabia, like the, uh, all the investigations into the possible collusion with Russia. This is distracting. Did Trump, I wouldn't put it past Trump to have the... Um, insight and communications genius to have purposely put this mistake out there to get us talking about something else uh, before, again, the, he took over the media cycle yet again with his pulling out of the Paris climate deal. So um, I am tired as a journalist and as a citizen of feeling like I'm in a country that's run by either a group of toddlers or perhaps even worse by some fraternity boys. The Kofefe Conspiracy. I like it. It starts right here. Let's get to it. <laughs> Several state and city officials across the nation have responded to President Trump's announcement that the United States will be pulling out of the Paris Climate Agreement. Mayor Michael Hancock said that the city of Denver will do what it can to live up to the Paris Agreement, and Governor John Hickenlooper called Trump's decision a serious mistake. Natasha, what did you make of the local reaction to a very big international story? Well, I think I was first and foremost surprised by how quickly it came. Um, you know, usually politicians take a take a moment to see what the temperament is, how people are going to feel about this. But these were very quick responses, which I think says a lot about how much support the state and its officials um, are going to give this issue. That, that regardless of what happens with pulling out of this agreement, the, the state of Colorado is going to continue forward with what it's doing. What I find interesting, too, is that it didn't take very long for people to figure out that they could both support Trump's um, departure, and then also not really say whether they agreed with climate change or not. And then when you came down to it, um, that's kind of what Kaufman did in his response, which was supporting the withdrawal, but saying that we would continue to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Um, so how that plays out in the next couple of weeks as reporters really dig into, like, okay, but if you feel that way, then why would you support this, is going to be interesting for us. Um, I think the, the overall message for me that has had the most impact is the French president President's statement of make the planet great again. I think that we, that has been just so crazy over social media um, today, and I think we're just going to see more of it. That question of where does America fit in the global picture? What can we do to be a part of making this planet great again? David, are you confident that critics or supporters of the Paris Climate Agreement know much about it? Of course not. 99% uh, of people don't have any clue about it, about the agreement at all. They just have a tribal thing one way or the other, as, as is true on, on many issues. But we, we did have an election in this country where this was an issue. The guy who won the election promised to withdraw from the agreement, and he kept his campaign promise. The, I think the sensible people on the issue will uh, follow the folks like at the Cato Institute, who, who, which I'm affiliated with, are climate experts like Michael Tanner, uh, um, sorry, wrong name, uh, Bjorn Lomberg and others, who say certainly there's strong evidence that over the last, say, 150 years, there's been 
not only has there been has the temperature globally increased, but at least some of that increase is due to, to man-made activity. The question is then, what are you, you going to do about that? If President Obama had been acting in a constitutional manner, when he signed a treaty with 197 other countries, the appropriate thing is you bring it back to the United States and put it before the United States Senate for ratification. He deliberately, and then, and then you make the case to the American people about why this is so important and why it's the best solution and the best way to address things instead of the alternatives. And if you convince the American people, then you have a ratified treaty, which is binding law, which one president can't do away with. Or, but instead, Obama evaded the Constitution and created what was, in effect, a treaty by viol illegally. So as a matter of constitutional law and in the rule of law in general, it was absolutely right to, with, to get out of this thing because it sets a terrible precedent of presidential unilateralism, uh, contrary to our constitutional system. The other countries, France, Italy, United Kingdom, uh, that are still enthusiastic about it, went through their own legal, proper processes of having the treaty uh, be ratified by Parliament. So that this is a big win for the rule of law. Eric, does this become a pretty significant uh, campaign weapon for folks? Because I, I honestly don't think, I'm not, I don't want to besmirch the American public, but I don't think there's going to be a lot of people who go in, dig into the details of the Paris Climate Agreement. They're going to say, if I'm, I'm pro something like this, then it was a terrible thing we got out of it, or if I'm against being told what to do by an international agreement, then I'm against, you know, one way or the other. But does it become a campaign weapon for folks running in, in really just a few months for Congress? Oh, of course it's a campaign weapon, but there's so many campaign weapons, and they're developing on a you know a daily or much less uh, at most weekly basis uh, that they're just one of many campaign weapons. And this is an issue where, you know, in real time, yesterday with the announcement, you could watch everyone running to their predictable corners, uh, and there's just no nuance to this issue at all. If you have any skepticism about the Paris Accords not about climate change, but about the Paris Accords as a workable document, then you're somehow branded a denier. Uh, if, uh, conversely, you think that, yes, we do need to do something as a, war, as a planet or as a country about greenhouse gas emissions, then you're branded as someone who doesn't care about the economy and jobs and is somewhere up there in the clouds, in the green clouds. Uh, what's completely lacking here is any sense uh, uh, any sense of nuance. The argument that was used by a lot of people in the White House, starting with Ivanka Trump, uh, Rex Tillerson, the Secretary of State, and others who were trying to persuade Trump to stay in the agreement, not to withdraw, almost is testimony to the weakness of the Paris Agreement. The argument was, well, there's really no teeth to it. Why get out of it? There's no teeth to it. Just change the targets for the U.S., whatever. So even the argument for staying to me, was testimony to the weakness of the agreement. David is absolutely right from a constitutional law perspective of how Obama should have treated this. Obviously, the votes were never going to be there in the United States Senate to ratify it. So Obama took the course he did. David uses the phrase presidential unilateralism. Uh, I'll give Trump credit for a few things, very few things. Somehow, him as a champion of... Uh, of taking offense at presidential unilateralism doesn't quite uh, doesn't quite fit for me. And lastly, Dominic, just the whole 
production of the announcement yesterday. I mean, I'm surprised that it wasn't accompanied by pomp and circumstance when he walked out. The fact that he tweeted it hours before, it just shows the narcissistic quality of this guy. I mean, you know, he has the authority as president to, to do what, he's going, what he did, but the, the stage handling and production of it just says everything there is to say about the man. Mary, this is uh, a big international agreement. It's clearly with uh, work you're doing with Feature Story News. There's going to be some international reaction. But it's also an agreement that was able to get agreement with over 190 countries. So uh, to Eric's point, uh, it's how much teeth it really could have. What's the reaction you've been seeing? What are your thoughts? Obviously, um, Emmanuel Macron, the French president, has um, the, the response that sort of, uh, you know, has, has dominated social media. And interestingly, that's the first time any sitting French president from the Elysee, their equivalent of the White House, has given an official address in English. That's how important it was for him to get this message out there. And it's certainly taken off saying that um, he's clearly positioning himself as the anti-Trump on climate change and all of the other issues. Um, as for, I think we got a, some great points here on the lack of subtlety on, on this issue, as with so many of the political um, points that we discuss, there's no room for any real, um, any real debate in the middle. And I think the person who who maybe responded with some subtlety was Representative Mike Kaufman, who, you know, rather than jumping out and expressing opposition to President Trump, which he has done on certain issues, and as many people are doing now, even Republicans, um, he said, let's find a way to reduce uh, carbon emissions. That's the one thing that, um, except for the hardcore deniers, everybody agrees on. I think it's uh, his response shows uh, to what degree he's a deft politician uh, who is, you know, trying to get reelected in his very diverse um, demographic out there. So um, also, of course, Hickenlooper, Governor Hickenlooper had a strong response um, going sort of beyond the climate climate issue and saying that this is a lack of moral leadership on the part of our of our president um, and that's sort of more in line with what we're seeing internationally. So Hickenlooper and the French president on one side, Kaufman in the middle. Not sure we're going to have a Hickenlooper and the French president <laughs> on the same side on a lot of issues in this show, but hey, there's a start. There's a start. Let's get to our next topic. Employers may become exempt from covering birth control under a new rule proposed by the Trump administration this week. Officials are drafting an order that would replace the executive order from the Obama administration that is currently a subject of a lawsuit from the Little Sisters of the Poor. David, uh, you're our esteemed lawyer at the table uh, and our local connection here with Little Sisters of the Poor, who I can't remember if they are based here, but certainly have a, a major footprint as an employer in Colorado. Uh, does the lawsuit become null and void if this executive order gets tossed? What, what's the different ramifications from what we're seeing here? Well, if, if the new regulation gives the, the plaintiffs, like Little Sisters of the Poor, what, what they want, then, then yes, then there's nothing more for a court to, to decide about. The, in our hierarchy, the Constitution's at the top, and then underneath that comes statutes passed by Congress. The statute here is the uh, Religious Freedom Restoration Act, passed during, by an overwhelming majorities of Congress in President Clinton's first term and enthusiastically signed by President Clinton. Um, and on the other side is a regulation created by the bureaucracy during the o Obama years. And in our system, a statute beats a regulation if there's ever a conflict. And again, this was also a, an election issue where the, the, the American people uh, chose the side that, that's currently revising the regulation. What the Religious Freedom Restoration Act says is for all federal laws going forward, when you're infringing somebody's religious freedom, that should only happen when the government does, doesn't have any less restrictive alternative. 
as the Supreme Court ruled in the Hobby Lobby case, let's say that you know the government's interest in, in people getting birth control without having to pay for it is a compelling interest of the highest order. That doesn't lead to saying that the only way that can be done is by a regulation ordering people to provide birth control contrary to their their own consciences. There's lots of ways you can give, you know, we give food stamps to people to help them eat without making that go through your employer. Employers shouldn't be in the bedroom, and if you don't want them in the bedroom, then don't ask for your bedroom supplies to come through your employment. There's lots of ways to provide birth control uh, in other ways than by violating the conscience of religious employers. Eric, we looked at the legal side of things, but there's clearly a political side of this because uh, I think, you know, in difference to David's point, it's not just a bedroom issue, and there's a much more of a, a health issue involved. So uh, we talked about political weapons in the last round. Is this another political weapon uh, as we come to not the presidential election, but just a uh, year and a half down the road? Of course. Anything that touches on choice in life and those social issues has been a political weapon for the last several decades, and it's not going away anytime soon. I come at this issue, Dominic. First of all, I am a believer in the rights of conscience. Um, it was the left, not all that many years ago, but many decades ago, that was, you know, preaching conscientious objection to a war. I do think this whole country, which is so, so divided right now, could use a lot more tolerance on all sides, but particularly some tolerance from the left to people who have religious, strong religious convictions. Now, that said, and I identify largely with a, a really good editorial in the Denver Post this morning, Friday morning. Um, on this issue. This proposed order is so overly broad. The objections that have been, whether it's Little Sisters of the Poor or other cases, have been to one specific form of birth control and employer's obligation to provide that form of birth control. And I don't think we want to get into a big reproductive talk, but it's after the embryo implants. And then, you know, it gets right. into the whole debate on uh, when life begins. But just to have a frontal attack on birth control, I don't even know a whole lot of pro-life advocates out there who are necessarily opposed to birth control. I hope if there is an order forthcoming, it gets drafted a little better than, we shall we say, the travel ban executive order of a few months ago got drafted. You know, a memo to Donald Trump. Being president is hard. It's difficult. Nuances matter. And I think, you know, it is possible to believe in a right of religious conscience. But A, that has to have some limits around it. And what we're talking about now is just such a broad debate. And if the Trump administration wants to take on birth control broadly, good luck to them, because the political backlash will be unlike anything we've seen. And we've seen a whole lot of political backlash. Mary, what we've seen so far is that there's a draft of a proposal, and I think it's uh, that's definitely on purpose. It wasn't just released, now it's law, or, or regulation, as, as David would put it. Uh, and maybe that's a balloon to kind of float out the reaction, but what we've seen so far as the draft is pretty broad, just like Eric said. Do you think we will see that modified based on the reaction we've seen this week? I don't think so. I think, again, this is part of controlling the media cycle, giving things people, giving people things to talk about. Um, and I also think that um, it's medieval to be talking about birth control in these terms, that birth control is medication. Many women use it for a variety of things, whether that's severe bleeding, severe cramping, acne, teenagers up to women who are nearly menopausal. This is medication we're talking about until we start talking about 
birth control in the same conversation that we're talking about. Viagra, Cialis, low testosterone hormones, and a variety of other things that men need, and perhaps taking them those things away or limiting how they get access to it, then we shouldn't be talking about it. This isn't a right or a left issue. This is medication, and we are an advanced country, and women should have right to birth control. And on that note, one thing we should be following in Colorado is that we do have this law now allowing women to, um, where you don't have to go to the pharmacy uh, once a month to pick up your prescription, you can get a whole year's worth. When women have better access to birth control like that, we know that the unintended pregnancy rate um, goes down. Um, so now in Colorado, that is um, becoming law. But what's happened in a lot of states where that has become law is pharmacies aren't actually enacting it. So for an example, in California, they have that law, but it's not necessarily easy for women to still access that. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out, um, uh, whether or not um, women can get their full year's supply here in Colorado. Natasha, uh, it's clearly a divisive issue, but a lot of women still voted for Donald Trump. So there's still a mm. lot of women who are going to be on his side in this issue. Where do you stand? It's 2017, right? <laughs> Last my check. <laughs> we're, we're still having this conversation? Okay, we can still have this conversation. And I can sit here and give you statistic after statistic about what birth control as a medicine does for women, does for our society, does for our families. And apparently that's not really getting through to a lot of people and that's still a problem. But what I will say again and again is that it is important to talk about this as a medicine, as a public health issue, as an issue that is important for families, for, for men, for women. It is not a gender only issue. It yes, gives women the ability to control their menstrual cycle, their reproductive cycle, to make choices about when they have kids. And that can be important for a young woman, but that can be equally as important for someone who's in their 30s hoping to have a second child who's maybe waiting until she gets that promotion at work so maybe someday she could get equal pay which is a totally different conversation but related to all of this which is why this little draft is still important to discuss and it's important for us to continue talking about because ultimately the pill maybe maybe it's a coffee moment maybe the coverage of the pill is wrong and we should stop calling it birth control but what it is which is something that helps women Women control their reproductive health in a hormonal way and in particular that can be taking care of acne that can be dealing with irregular periods that can be dealing with a whole host of issues including very serious medical conditions like polycystic ovary syndrome which can lead to heart disease and diabetes so if we're denying women access to a medicine that can help treat or even prevent those issues what does that say about us so th this conversation, yeah, let, let's change the, the tone on it to really think of it as, as, as a people's human public interest issue. Clearly more to come. Let's get to our favorite part of the show, Disgrace of the Week. Natasha, you have the honors this week to start us off. Oh, this one's easy. Usually I, I, I struggle for this one, but between our first topic and then the Denver Post reporters Memorial Day weekend um, tweets, Twitter. <laughs> what role does it play in our lives? I just think about the amount of my brain power that has gone into thinking about you know, controversies related to Twitter this week, and it's just, what, what is it doing for us? <laughs> David. Kathy Griffin, with her so-called humor video, engaged in a gross example of cultural appropriation uh, from jihad. Eric. This one is also easy for me, but unfortunate and personal because my son actually attends this school. But Evergreen State College up in Olympia, Washington, which has become the latest ground zero for college campus craziness, where now there was an attempt to, by race, tell a group of students that they needed to ha spend a day away from campus. And then we've seen massive protests and unrest. 
we've seen a professor who objected, very liberal professor, but who objected to this crazy policy targeted in a, with threats of violence. And we've seen a college president who is so anxious to, uh, to, to, to pander to the mob that he's not even defending his own professor here. It is disgusting. It is an outrage. Mary. Disgrace of the week, I would say, um, you know, we have the Anadarko story. That's the story that sadly keeps on giving. They are, um, two of their facilities have experienced fatal explosions over the past month, six weeks or so. And um, with the fallout of that, and we're seeing sort of the overall lack of transparency in the oil and gas industry, attempts among lawmakers to call for more transparency, but largely among lots of talking I've been doing with people in Weld County and Broomfield, they feel there's a terrible lack of transparency in terms of what the real risks are to their homes and their lives due to our booming oil and gas development in Colorado, and that's a story that I'm following closely. Say something nice about somebody, the most difficult part of the show, Natasha. <laughs> this is also easy this week. I-25 got shut down because there was a tanker explosion. Um, there were CDOT workers nearby who kind of did this really movie-esque rescue of the driver. Um, the fact that there was um, so little damage, that, that this was cleaned up so quickly that our city got back to moving the way that it typically does was really impressive. So kudos to those CDOT workers and CDOT as a whole. They had it repaired by 4 a.m. the next day. That was impressive. David. Fifty years ago, the Six-Day War, when Israel put into action the principle in the Talmud, if someone comes to kill you, rise up and kill him first. The dictatorships of Syria and Egypt were ready and mobilized and preparing to strike to exterminate the Israeli people. Uh, but the Israeli people made never again a reality because this time the Jews have their own state and their own arms. Eric. I was going to the same place Natasha went with CDOT, but since she said that uh, quite well, let me just do a shout-out to Frank DeFord, who I think was a sports writer for the ages, um, and not only a sports writer, but a commentator that we all listen to on a weekly basis on uh, NPR and National Public Radio. Wednesdays were always something to look forward to. I listened to his final story not that many weeks ago, maybe three weeks ago. I knew he was ill. I didn't know he was this ill. He will be missed. Mary. And a shout-out to somebody who retired this week, Linda Merrick. She was the national head of 9 to 5, the group that um, advocates for working women. And um, she served for many years, um, both in the Colorado chapter and running the group nationally. I had the chance to interview her a number of times. Does great work, um, knows a lot of stuff. And on that note, um, one thing that she always um, spoke against was the gender um, gender pay wage gap, um, which in Colorado is worse than the national statistic. Uh, Colorado women earn 78 cents to the dollar for every man here, and we all know we need that money to pay probably increasingly for our birth control, so um, uh, we'll keep that in mind. And <laughs> we don't want to cut you off, especially in the middle of the scene. You don't get enough time. <laughs> the show is ending. That's all the time we have tonight. Thanks for tuning in. Our June Pledge Drive kicks off this weekend, so if you enjoy programs like this one, please consider supporting us. As an aside, we have a bunch of great ticket offers and concerts this month, including Britt Floyd and ABBA happening in June. As always, be sure to check out our podcast on iTunes and for our CAO postgame segment on Twitter and Facebook. For everyone here at Channel 12, I'm Dominic Dizzuti. Thanks very much for watching. Good night. Thank you.